You're tuned into the COVID-19 Community Report here on KDRT-LP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. I'm Autumn Labbe-Renault. Today is Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. We're sharing local news and resources focusing on what's impacting Davis and nearby cities in Yolo County during the COVID-19 pandemic. I've read those words weekly, sometimes twice weekly in the early days since launching this show on March 17th, 2020. Here in episode 61, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm taking a look back at some of the voices from the pandemic. I've interviewed just shy of 100 people representing a breadth of experiences across Yolo County. We've heard from elected officials ranging from Congress to school board, from Yolo County's public health staff, and from teachers and students and parents I've interviewed artists and musicians, journalists, businesses, and nonprofit leaders. I've focused on the science interviewing epidemiologists, virologists, and hospital administrators. We've talked about mental health, homelessness, hopelessness, and resiliency. And through it all, I've tried to illustrate that the pandemic has meant many things to many people and to highlight the ways it's illuminated the holes in our safety net and the extra burdens borne by marginalized communities. Next week will be the final episode of this show. This has been a place, I hope, to tell the stories of Yolo County in a time bookended by contagion and white supremacy and riddled with both widespread divisiveness but also unprecedented collaboration. These have not been the easiest of days. I thank everyone who agreed to speak with me for their willingness and their candor and their vulnerability. Many times I heard reflections that surprised me and I learned a great deal. Today, I've pulled out what I thought were particularly poignant passages from the past 13 months. We'll start with a few of the interviews from the earliest days of the pandemic. In the very first episode on March 17th, 2020, Davis City Council member and now Vice Mayor Lucas Frerichs was kind enough to jump in the hot seat with me. Right. So we, are, we also are planning on having an update from YOLO Office of Emergency Services tonight. Uh, so with all of our local you know, agencies, the city, of course, but all you know, police department and fire and others, and you know, all these different local regional, regional agencies are all working together on you know, conference calls all day long. Uh, pretty much every day now, uh, just sort of working through emergency plans and such, and trying to figure out, uh, you know, if there may need to be a, a shelter in place, you know, um, uh, process put in place as well. We haven't gotten there yet. Lots of people have been calling for that, certainly. But uh, I think the other thing that we're also working on is uh, some, you know, help for businesses. Uh, we've heard from a lot of small businesses nonprofits in the community, but also just, you know, business owners, you know, about uh, how can not only the city help, but also are there, you know, is there potentially going to be some assistance coming up, of course, from the federal government as well, too, state and federal government, and, you know, some of that remains to be seen, but um, for one example, for the city that we're considering, and uh, we're going to have more of a discussion tonight and probably act on it, is the, like, deferring of city utility bills. Um, allowing mm-hmm. that for, for folks that are in need of it. So uh, anyway, we're, there's, you know, we're, we're just trying to be, be responsive to the sort of changing conditions. 
Great. So let's remind people of uh, what time the meeting starts tonight and where they can tune in online or on Comcast. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the uh, meeting is at 6 p.m. Uh, actually in the community chambers, uh, but also uh, it is uh, obviously live streamed um, and as always, so, you know, via the city's website, um, and I'm just pulling that up. My apologies. Hold on one sec. Um, uh, so that's easy for folks to sort of check out. Uh, and then also, let me, here we go. Uh, and then also, um, uh, so just on the City of Davis website, you can get to that live stream. Also, the Dave, City of Davis government channel, uh, which is either Comcast Channel 16 or AT&T Universe Channel 99, uh, you can watch the meeting, and uh, we are actually, it's sort of an evolving situation with regard to public comment. Um, as of right now, the public is invited to attend the meeting, um, and I think that's still going to be the case, but we are frankly just advocating for folks to, uh, you know, either send us an email, uh, of course, or, you know, give, you know, however you want to participate, but give us a call or send us an email beforehand uh, if possible, but, uh, you know, we're working on more uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, remote ways of people being able to participate um, in public participation. Right. And is there any thought to a shelter-in-place order for Yolo County? Have you heard anything about that? So, I mean, uh, it's no decision has been made yet, uh, but uh, that is definitely uh, in consideration or under consideration by uh, our, as I was mentioning earlier, a number of our, you know, our, like whether it's our police department, uh, you know, folks or others are, you know, and all these different city manager and other city sort of departments are all in conversations with the, the different agencies, like you know, Yolo County, the other cities in, in Yolo County, and so with also with also our uh, public health folks, uh, you know, p public health practitioners, Dr. Ron Chapman, the public health officer, and others. So they're that you know they're having that discussion um, you know, today, literally as we speak. So. I was going to say, usually those kinds of decisions come down from the county level, don't they? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly correct. People have been asking the city to do it. Um, it's really, that's really a function of the county. Um, and we're not really sure that we can just sort of do that on our own. We also, um, it, it can also come from higher than the county, of course, too. Um, in episode five, Jessica Hubbard, executive director of the Yolo Community Foundation, talked about the immediate and widespread impact of the pandemic on our local nonprofits. So I'm hearing the same. Um, well, I would divide local nonprofits into two groups. Okay. One is the nonprofits that are directly involved in relief efforts, mm -hmm. and they are working harder than they've ever worked before. They still need significant financial resources because the scale of the response is so tremendous. Um, but they also have money coming in. It's just that they need they need more from all of us so that they're able to meet the need in the community. And then the second group is nonprofits that are not directly involved in relief efforts. They still have a role to play in all of this, a significant role when it comes to mental health and education and recovery, mm -hmm. but they're less involved in the immediate disaster response. And those are the organizations that I'm hearing from that their revenue streams have just turned off. In episode 16, from May 8th, 2020, Senator Bill Dodd, a Democrat who represents our District 3, urged caution as we navigated the rapidly developing situation. How do you see us beginning to move onto this road to recovery? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's going to be difficult. Uh, I think it was going to be, you know, even with our uh, 
you know, e- even with our um, uh, rainy day fund, the, mm-hmm. you know, the budget surplus that we had, I, I still think our local school districts uh, in some of our areas throughout the state of California were going to have difficulties. Mm-hmm. You know, they're having to pay higher, higher percentage of the money that the state has given them, you know, on pensions. The governor has done an outstanding job uh, in the legislature of helping fund, uh, you know, big-time um, contributions towards uh, the PERS fund, uh, which is helpful, but mm-hmm. it's something that's been needed now for a long time. Uh, you know, but now that uh, we're going to have the type of, you know, budgets that we have, the $20 billion rainy day fund uh, probably, probably will not be enough to stand up education anywhere near what we had, you know, prior to the pandemic. In episode 26 from June 30th, 2020, UC Davis virologist Dr. Kuhn Van Rompe talked about the process of developing vaccines. His work was instrumental in UCD's contributions to the development of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. Yeah, so basically the development of a vaccine uh, is really uh, very time-consuming yeah? because, of course, you really want to make sure that the vaccine works. But uh, also, uh, let's say, above all, you want the vaccine to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so with uh, some other viruses, sometimes there have been vaccines that were developed that looked promising early on, but then when they were actually rolled out on massive scale, it was discovered that some of those vaccines actually had serious side effects. So that uh, sometimes, for example, uh, that, that happened with the vaccine against the dengue virus, mm-hmm. that subpopulations of people actually became more susceptible if they had first received the vaccine. Oh. So, that, so that's actually a very big risk. Eh? So that's something that really has to be then beat. Uh, so, that, so that's why the whole process of vaccine development is quite slow. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are now also gearing up to become part of a large network of different private centers where we are actually going to test several vaccines that are now already in human trials. Uh, and so that look promising so far, really do a head-to-head comparison in monkeys yeah, with regard to the efficacy and regard to safety. So that if, for example, it's seen in humans that each of these vaccines seems to kind of work, the monkey data can actually then help us to tell us, look, which vaccine of all of those seems to be the most effective one. Mm-hmm. But also one of the big questions with vaccines is also uh, when you, people are also animals are vaccinated, how long does it give protection? Yeah? Because, of course, ideally we want a vaccine that if somebody gets immunized, they would be protected for at least several years and hopefully for many years. By June 2nd, 2020, we still had hope that local schools would be, would be able to return to in-person instruction in the fall. Former DJUST school board president Cindy Pickett addressed this in episode 22. Yeah, I know it's been, um, you know, it's been a roller coaster. It's been a ride for um, the teachers, the staff, the parents, um, and the students. Um, and, you know, first I just want to, you know, express gratitude to everyone who's been working so hard and to the families who have, um, and students just showing resilience and, mm-hmm. um, you know, going through this as, um, as a group. And, uh, and so what... I would say the last couple months were simply trying to um, roll out distance learning and to end the year in a way where students are still, um, you know, they're, they're having the social interaction um, with uh, their classmates, um, getting some instruction, working on assignments. 
So keeping the educational mission going, Mm -hmm. uh, while at the same time realizing that this is not um, a a typical circumstance, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's not like homeschooling where there is, you know, where someone is dedicated to being able to teach a child or to help get them um, into their instructional classes. Um, A lot of times parents are also trying to work, um, dealing with their own jobs and their own stress. By December 1st, 2020, things were looking very dark as Yolo County saw its adjusted daily case rate for the week ending November 22nd jump to 28.2 per 100,000 residents, up from 20.9 just days prior. And many of us were wondering what the numbers might look like seven to 10 days after holiday gatherings at Thanksgiving. I interviewed Dr. Amy Sisson, who was at the time the new public health officer for Yolo County, and we talked about the growing backlash against public health messaging. On the heels of Thanksgiving, where, you know, we saw all of the the messaging was around, you know, don't travel, don't gather. If you gather, only gather outside, all of that messaging. Um, There's a good article in today's Wall Street Journal about this topic, citing the dramatic, um, even even the more dramatic pre-Thanksgiving messaging that some states put out along the lines of, uh, th- this was when I saw, and I can't remember which state it's from, it does no good to have grandma at the Thanksgiving table if you have to bury her at Christmas. I mean, that's that's really um, kind of hardcore messaging. That's that's really kind of in your face. I'm not suggesting that, that everyone has embraced that. Yolo County has not embraced that. But I, I, I guess I understand that there was some hope that the severity of those messages would get through to people and instead it seems like um, there's more of a backlash of people just kind of tuning it out so how do we reach people about the importance of not gathering and not traveling as Christmas as people are tuning out yeah I I think that's a wonderful question and I I don't think that we have uh, have a good answer. I, I think traditional public health approaches and, and messages have, are, are kind of failing at this point in the pandemic uh, where, you know, I, I think we have a lot of folks who, who are listening and, and, are, and are doing as we suggest and recommend, but there's also a large proportion of the population that has made a decision uh, that, that they will make their own decisions, that they will not follow public health advice. And so I think that is it is very is very challenging. Um, you know, on the on the gathering piece, we did have a shift in our messaging away from a you know a strict ban on gatherings, which I think you you'd seen basically since the beginning of the pandemic and mm-hmm. the first stay at home order in March, uh, to what we're calling harm or risk reduction language, uh, focused more on look. We discourage gathering, but we recognize that many people are still going to gather, and so we're going to provide you with um, tools uh, to help you make the decisions if you do choose to gather how to do so more safely. So that's where you see the recommendations of do it outdoor, keep it short, keep it small. Um, but I think it's it's a very tricky area to, to message because in the end, the safest thing is to not gather yeah. uh, with people outside your immediate household. And so that's the message we really want to send. But at the same time, recognizing that some people are going to gather and to, to help provide them with information about how to do so more safely. And, 
and I, I still think that we're we're trying to figure out the the best way to get these messages out there, and and certainly you know open open to uh, to feedback on how we can better convey the the especially right now just how high the risk is not just in Yolo County but uh, throughout California and throughout the United States and really send this message of right now being at home is the safest place to be and yes stores are open and many of them will continue to remain open uh, but if you don't have to go out please don't. Later that month in episode 37 I spoke with Jesse Salinas Yolo County's assessor clerk recorder and elections chief on what it was like to manage an election during a pandemic. And boy, did a lot change. It was quite a shift. Uh, All I can say is that when we started looking at the traditional polling places and what we discovered from the March primary is that we had a bit of a crisis in terms of poll workers. Uh, Just to kind of give a little snapshot of what took place back then in March, it was the very beginning of the COVID outbreak and we were losing poll workers at an extraordinary rate on election day. And it was just the very tip of the announcement of COVID. So we knew we had to make a lot of changes and there were changes that were being discussed statewide uh, with the the Secretary of State's office and registrars across the state of how we were gonna try to put this election together. In early February, We reached episode 50 and Davis Mayor Gloria Partita joined me to talk about the groundbreaking partnership between UC Davis and the city of Davis known as Healthy Davis Together, which had been profiled in the New York Times just the week prior. Here we discuss the importance of asymptomatic testing. And so the weekly testing is important because um, you can catch people who are asymptomatic uh, and also, you can catch people maybe a few days before they begin to show symptoms. Mm-hmm. And- In that same episode, I spoke with mental health counselor Kristen Skye about how teens are faring during the pandemic. I'd spoken with several mental health professionals during the course of the year, but this interview was unique for its focus on teens. I think that right now our teens are in a grief process. They're grieving what they thought their high school years would be, grieving relationships and the way of life that they were accustomed to. Um, In some cases, grieving actual deaths from Mm COVID-19. Our our teens are experiencing isolation fatigue right now, not being able to, to pursue what's important to them. And I think adding that to the unprecedented racial and political stress of our times, we do see an unusually high number of teens seeking services. Mm -hmm. By February, tensions between parent groups and school administrators were at an all-time high. I spent five weeks focusing on the reopening of schools, speaking with administrators, teachers, parents, and students. Ultimately, the conversations I had with students in the 6th, 7th, and 12th grades were among my favorites from the year. Here's Davis High School senior Danielle Engato talking about a typical school day and how he works to keep himself balanced and present even as he feels a certain amount of hopelessness about the future. 
Um, so typical school day for me will start around like 6 a.m. I wake up, I get in a good workout, motivational, like dancing. I'll be listening to some Afro beats or some caramba, um, you know, some some stuff from Haiti just to get myself in the mindset to go to school because if I don't, what just happens is I feel this heavy depressive episode just fall on me the entire day and I just don't want to get up. I don't want to be productive. And the urge in Zoom classes, you know, to just have another device right there and, you know, hit up Netflix, Hulu or whatever, <laughs> just to distract you from the pain of what's going on. Yeah. It, it's a really hard urge to fight. So when I get up early, get myself motivated, get myself going, make myself a healthy oatmeal breakfast with some fruits in there. And I try to be as attentive and present as possible in all my classes even though I do all these things and I have gotten better about it, it is still hard because there's a part of me that's just kind of like, why are we doing all of this for, especially since the future at this stage is not guaranteed yeah. and you don't honestly know what is to be predicted of the future. You don't really know what's going to happen. So it's kind of feeling as if I'm just doing something for no reason and there is no actual cause for it. So it's kind of like you're in a feeling of hopelessness and you're just trying to get yourself up and going again. In March of this year, I focused on some amazing women from around Yellow County. In episode 56, Lisa Yep Salina shared her painful experiences dealing with anti-Asian and Pacific Island racism during the pandemic. It's worth noting that we spoke just the day before the horrific and racially motivated murders of Asian women in Atlanta. You have to go buy groceries for your family, right? Mm -hmm. That was my, my duty to buy groceries for the family. Um, and you go to Costco, right? And mm -hmm. you buy your things at Costco. And um, I think I was attacked at Costco at least three times. And some of them were physical assaults. Every time they said a racial slur, so it was pretty apparent what was going on, and then they blamed me for COVID-19. Oh and goodness. sometimes the, the swearing was going on in English and sometimes in Spanish, so they thought I didn't understand what they were saying, hmm. but I did. So um, my, my recommendation to people for self-defense is know as many languages as you can because <laughs> you never know. It can't be. Can't hurt, that right? out very harshly. <laughs> yeah. In episode 57, Jenaba Lahai of Yolo County Children's Alliance got real about the technology gap among their clientele and what funders can really do to help nonprofits better serve marginalized communities. There's a huge technology divide, and I'm, I'm glad that a lot of organizations are taking a look at that and addressing that need right now. So we're looking at how to be more innovative with technology um, and how to support families in accessing resources that will reduce their uh, cell phone bills as well as their internet bills so that they're able to connect virtually. Moving forward, we're also listening to families. One thing that I would hope that funders and service providers would do as we move forward. And I agree with you, Autumn, that this pandemic, you know, although things are opening up, 
there might be another surprise around the corner. Mm -hmm. But moving forward, I think that we cannot go back to the way we were um, operating. I mean, of course, we can take some of those things and move that into the future, but we need to really look at how we can best listen to the family and try to utilize utilize more of those cultural um, tools that we have in our back, back pocket, you know, cultural settings, mm -hmm. informal settings, and more empathy interviewing, like listen to the family and implement services that will meet the needs, the needs that they have. So for funders in particular, one of the things that I constantly talk about is that we try to fix things into a box. And as individuals, as families, as humans in this world, on this planet, not, you know, not one size fits all. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing we have to realize. One size does not fit all. We cannot fit people into a box. We cannot fit people's life stories and circumstances into a box. We have to approach it from an individual angle. We have to pro approach it case by case. So as funders, one thing that I like to say, and, you know, in the nonprofit world, we're really dealing with this right now, you know, if funders are listening, we are the expert in this work that we do. We are the expert because we incorporate the voices of our consumers. We incorporate family voices into everything that, I, that we do. Help us best serve the families as they want to be served in an authentic, authentic and compassionate manner. Finally, I'll end where I started, more or less. Yolo County Supervisor Don Saylor was one of my earliest interviews and last week in episode 60, he shared with me some of his takeaways from this time. In amongst the grief and the discomfort, he says, there's been tremendous collaboration. I think the, the biggest thing is a cementing of my concept of the YOLO way of people rising to work beyond any mandate or responsibility or authority they thought they had make hundreds of quick decisions, people stepping outside their comfort zones, doing, doing jobs that they would never have anticipated. We had really, really fantastic uh, work from uh, Dr. Amy Sisson and Ron mm -hmm. Chapman, her predecessor, Brian Vaughn, our public health officer, and Jenny Tan, who I know you've spoken with a number of times, has yeah. been doing these very thorough briefings. Uh, we just had uh, folks stepping out of their normal jobs, a probation officer who is now running the logistics for the vaccine, volunteer vaccine clinics, uh, people who, who uh, would work on emergency response stuff have actually been redeployed and are doing all kinds of issues, problem solving, answering every number, every question from every small business owner to a neighbor who's got a concern about what's happening on the street. This mm -hmm. just all kinds of people stepping up to help each other, to volunteer for the clinics, to volunteer in food distributions. Uh, just, just a, I've, it's been a heartwarming experience to watch this all unfold. Yeah. And then, uh, and of course, uh, we have uh, 199 people in Yolo County have died yeah. uh, from COVID this year. And that's, that's a, when you, when you say those numbers, the numbers, not, that's not a, that's not really what it, what it's about. It's, it's James Glicka Hernandez, and it's everybody else whose names we could all think of. Thank you for joining me on this journey. 
I'll be back next week with one final episode of the COVID-19 Community Report when my guests are Michael Bish and Rob Davis from the Yolo County Food Bank.